Uh, if this is your first time here, uh, we have a little gift we'd like to give you. Um, we give out scripture journals. We go through the word of God here. So if you would like one of those scripture journals, it's just a free gift to you. It's got the first Corinthians in it and it allows you to take notes along with the sermon. Just raise your hand and somebody will bring one of those around to you. We love God's word here and would love for you to have that uh, if you do not have one. Uh, for those of you guys that have been around for the last several months, you're probably wondering why I finished chapter 14 last week and then why we're in chapter 16 this week. And there's some very, very specific reasons for that. Uh, in two weeks from today, we're celebrating Easter Sunday. Yes, and amen. Um, although we celebrate the resurrection every week here. Amen? Right? Amen. Um, but uh, we're going to go through chapter 15 on Easter Sunday. So if you're kind of like, ah, uh, what's going on here? Is there a reason why we're just skipping the Bible? Uh, we're not. Uh, we're going to go through chapter 15 that week. So next week, Pastor Daniel is going to lead us through a um, Palm Sunday preparation message. And then the following week, we will work through chapter 15 on the resurrection. Uh, if you want to be, you know, like super advanced and like read ahead, right? Great time to do that, but we will do that in two weeks. Okay. All right. So I got a question I want to pose to you guys before we dive into chapter 16 and finish up uh, this, this letter and then go back to chapter 15. But anyway, here's the question. Anyone in here ever experience saying goodbye to someone uh, and, and you're about to leave and head out the door or they're about to leave and head out the door and then there ends up being hundreds of instructions and final words on your way out the door? Okay, a few of you guys. Okay, maybe not as many as I thought would have been. Maybe it's just common in my family to do that and not yours. Um, I'm fairly confident um, that this is at least how babysitters at our house feel every time Jackie and I are on our way out. Um, I'll say goodbye to the kids and then I'll take them aside and give them dozens of instructions on if their behavior doesn't align up with what we've told them ahead of time, what will await them upon our return. Uh, and specifically to Gideon, I'm like, dude, like, you will set the tone in the house because you're the oldest. If you set an improper tone, there will be consequences for that. And like, yeah, dad, okay, got it, right? Like, I'll help the babysitter, I've got it. It's like, we're good. Like, I'll keep Josiah in line. Like, we're good, okay? Meanwhile, Jackie's over with the babysitter and she's got a 10-page a, a paper written out on instructions, how we feed the kids, when bedtime is, how to do medicine for our kids, you know, like all that stuff. And so... Um, some of you guys are like, I am never babysitting, don't ever ask, or whatever else. Uh, but I, I was thinking to myself, like, as I was reading through chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians this week, um, that, like, why do we do that? And I think, like, for Jackie and I in particular, the reason we do that for the babysitter and for our kids is we're expressing to them, hey, when we're home, the house operates a certain way. And, and we're used to those rhythms, uh, we're used to the structure of those rhythms, and our, our family tends to, to thrive inside of those rhythms and, and those rules and those expectations that we have for one another while we're there. And now that mom and dad are going to be outside of the home for a couple of hours, we want you guys to continue to thrive even without us being there. Like our, our hopes are that they would have a good time with the babysitter, that they would play and enjoy their time together, but they would also do so with the boundaries that have been set inside of our home. And so we leave a ton of really quick instructions for them before we head out 
Just as one final reminder, hey, you guys know how things tend to operate. Don't forget. It will go better with you if you stay inside of those boundaries. That is kind of what we see Paul doing here in this final chapter of 1 Corinthians this morning. He spent chapters encouraging this church, exhorting them, um, unpacking doctrine and, and also unpacking issues that were going on inside of this church. He's helped counsel them and equip them on how to deal with these issues and, and how to address them with one another and, and how to correct them and, and build the church up in unity and love. And so this, this final chapter is Paul expressing his hope for this church in Corinth and their continued faithfulness to Jesus. And as he's doing that, he's just going to kind of rapid fire some instructions to them. But the beautiful thing, I think, is if we, if we kind of boil down this chapter, there's three major encouragements or, or themes or um, kind of maybe charges of responsibility that Paul is going to leave the Corinthians. And these are the things that I think even some 2,000 or so years later, God really wants us to see as well, right? So here they are, right? He's going to teach them or remind them that as the church, the body of Christ, the redeemed people of Jesus, they have a responsibility of generosity, that they have a responsibility of encouragement or to be encouraging, however you want to word that. And they have a responsibility of faithfulness, primarily to Jesus, but also to one another. All right, so look at these first four verses with me, and let's start unpacking what's going on here, okay? So verses one through four, right, we see this, this call or this responsibility to generosity. Look at what he says. He says, now... Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. All right, so Paul is giving some specific instructions uh, for the taking up of the collection or the offering here in Corinth. And apparently, Israel and some of the surrounding areas where the church had first started uh, was going through a really difficult time, both economically and physically. Um, this is mentioned in the book of Acts, if you've ever read it, that there was churches in the Mediterranean world taking up collection for the church of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judah and Israel. Uh, but what had, what had happened during this time period, or at least what scholars and historians have said, is that there was a famine that had taken place in that region. And they believed that there have also been some natural disasters, like possibly an earthquake, uh, among other things. And so this is Paul's instruction to them on how they're to take up the collection for these churches. And so he gives them this, these really, really super practical instructions. He says, take collection on the first day during your gathering. Each of you is to put something aside to store up. 
uh, as he may prosper. And so what that line means is as you are able. He's basically saying, hey, hey, as you're able to give, each of you should be giving something. He says the church is to set that aside until he arrives. And then once he arrives, they will decide on how to properly oversee that distribution to the church of Jerusalem. All right, so I want to I pause and take a step back here. Because one, right, no one likes a church that talks about giving all the time. I got nothing. Really? Nothing? Okay. I'll just talk about giving amen every week here, right? No, right? It's not something we talk about super often here at the church, not because we don't care about it, but because we just, we address things as they come up in the text. And because we studied the Bible verse by verse, line by line, right? We address these things topically when they come up in the text, okay? Now, one of the things I want to point out though is that there is a lot of teaching on giving and generosity in the Bible, and so I've got some, some principles that I want to kind of lay out here biblically because I think it's important for us to take a step back and understand this, that there would have been an understanding inside the church at Corinth on this already that Paul is assuming of them, and I want to make sure we're landing on the same spot. So let, let's, let's move through these. I've got four of them. If you're a note taker, these would be the ones you're writing down. All right. So here's the first one, right? Jesus taught on money and giving consistently. Now, I've heard it said, uh, even when I was in seminary, that Jesus taught on giving and generosity more than any other topic in the New Testament. That's, that's actually not true. Right? The number one thing that Jesus teaches on is actually the kingdom of heaven and, and its arrival. Uh, where people get that idea, though, is that in, in 11 of, uh, of Jesus' 39 parables, they include money. But it's either as a direct application of how to use that money or as an illustration that points to a larger truth. But, I w- but this is important to understand. From Christ's teachings throughout the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus both talked about money and cares about how we use our money. That, that the way we exercise what is given to us, the way we invest it, the way we are generous with it, uh, the way we uh, pay our debts or whatever else it may be, that the way we use our finances is one of many ways that actually reveal our hearts. They reveal who our true master is. And Jesus' teaching on money consistently has this, this theme of when you are spending your money, using your money, giving your money, storing up your money, whatever you're doing with it, you need to check yourself because your motivation for how you're using that says far more than the actual application of that money. That the way we give says something to the world about who our God is. The way we manage our finances says something to the world about who our God is and how our faith in him is placed. And so Jesus teaches this in many, many different areas, and we'll look at a few of those here in a minute. But the second point that I want us to see, and this is something that that Paul says here in the text in chapter 16, is there is this assumption that if you are here this morning and you declare yourself to be a disciple or follower of Jesus Christ, that this would be a hard and fast rule for you. 
Everyone should be giving something. He says there in chapter 16, each of us is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Right, so he's telling them, you need to give, you collectively need to store it up, and then you need to be prepared to do something with that once it's stored up as there is need. Hear me on this, guys. If you are a follower of Jesus in here this morning, God's expectation of you is that you are giving to the local church. Now, I know immediately because money brings in all sorts of feelings and emotions with people, and they're like, oh yeah, real easy for you to say, you're the pastor and this is the church, right? Real easy for you to kind of just say, God wants you to have my money. This is not super comfortable for me, believe it or not, right? Like, like telling people how to use their finances and operate with them and to give is like actually not the reason I got into pastoral ministry, Crazy as it may sound to you. Like, it wasn't like, you know what I want to do? I want to get rich planning a church in a college town where they don't have any money. (laughs) Guys, I'm not stupid, right? If I really did want to do that, I wouldn't have picked Gainesville to start a church. And then I wouldn't spend as much time with college students as I did. College students, I love you guys. You don't have any money. (laughs) Right? So hear me on this. As I am teaching through this this morning, as we're processing through this, right, We're unpacking this because this is what God says about it, not because I want your money. If I wanted money, I would have a different job. Thank you for who laughed at that, but I really would. (laughs) I really, really would. But God's expectation of us is that we're giving collectively as the body of Christ so that we might meet the needs of of our community, both locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. That God wants his people to be a people who are generous. And that's not just with money, but it does include money. And one of the frequent kind of pushbacks I get on this, especially in our church, because we do have so many young people, so many college students, is I'll hear things like this. It's easy to say, well, I don't have anything to give, so I don't give. And uh, college students, again, I was a college student one, once. I get it, right? Ask my wife what I subsisted on throughout college. Little Caesars, peanut butter toast, animal crackers, ramen, and frozen chicken patties, the five major food groups. There's probably irreparable damage done to my body, right? Doctors come up and tell me afterwards if I need to start doing some things in the future to fix that four years. But I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 21 with me. And I want you to look at what Jesus has to say. And you guys are probably familiar with this story, but I, but I, want, I want us to see it right in totality of what Jesus is actually seeing here. And this is a real story. I mean, this is something that Jesus actually witnessed. This is not a parable. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. This would have been at the the synagogue or the temple. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. 
Right? Jesus seems to be saying here in this illustration that one, giving is not an option. Right? And he's commending this woman for giving, even when poor. And that the amount is less important than the intent of the generosity or the giving. Right? Those other guys, like the organization, the structure of the synagogue, the structure of the temple was being run on the bigger gifts. But as is so often the case with our Savior, he cares more about the intent and the heart than he does the actual action itself. So college students, hear, hear me on this. And, 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 and maybe you're struggling financially and you're not a college student, so hear me on this. I know you don't have money. The pastors and elders of this church know that you don't have money. But there is a way that we can manage our disposable income in such a way as to still be generous towards others and give to the local church. Like, let me, let me give you a really, really practical example. Skip the Frappuccino one day a week. Those things are like $30 a piece now at Starbucks. <laughs> Thanks, inflation. Right? Skip it. Brew your own cup of coffee if you need the caffeine that badly. Right? And set something aside because here's what I'll promise you. Right? That God desires you to be generous not because he needs you but because he wants you to be declaring something and demonstrating it to the world around you but he also knows that your generosity will do something inside of your own heart or one of the lessons that my wife and I have learned over the years that oftentimes in, in our uh, I don't want to say poverty, but, but in, in our lack sometimes, that we still made it a, a, a priority to be generous and to give. And God was always abundantly generous to us in return. And this isn't some prosperity theology where I'm like, hey, if you sow a seed, God's going to turn it back tenfold. It's not what I'm saying. One of my favorite stories to tell people when I'm, when I, especially in premarital counseling, when we're helping couples think through their finances and prepare for life together, is I'll share this story because in our house, I tend to be the one that wants to give everything away, and Jackie's the one that actually manages the money in the house because who knows where it would be if I was in charge of it. And uh, in, in the early years of our marriage, the Lord had just kind of pressed upon me to be giving to this church planner. And, and I went to Jackie and I was like, hey, God's laid it on my heart for us to be generous and give this money to a church planner. And Jackie's like, that's really great that the Lord would ask you to do something with money we don't have. Like how, how wonderful. And I'm like, no, like God called us to do it. So like we should just do it. And she's like, okay, well, let me open the checkbook for you because clearly you don't understand simple mathematics. <laughs> we don't have the money. It does not exist. And I'm like, okay, well, we've done this before, and money just showed up out of nowhere, so we're just going to do this. Like, we're going to do it, right? My, my prosperity theology was, like, coming full bore. I'm like, yes! Like, I will give, and God will give back, right? This is it. And so, so we gave, right? And I committed to this, this church planner, and we're giving this money, and we're, like, three months in, and Jackie's like, dude, the Lord is not doing what he did last time. Like, we do not have this money. I'm telling you. 
And so I sat down and I prayed and I looked at the budget. I was like, you know what? There's only one way to fix this deficit. Cable's got to go. Some of you guys are like, cable? Like, okay, this was before cord cutting. Relax. This was hard for me. I'm like, cable's got to go. That made up the windfall in our budget monthly for what we were giving. And you know what the Lord taught me through that? I didn't need all the things I thought I needed. That, that the commitment to generosity freed me from my slavery to some things that I thought I needed that I didn't really need. Right? That when God wants us to be generous, it's not just because right, he wants you to be providing for others or providing, no, he actually wants to teach you about dependence and what need really is. Which brings us to our fourth point. Sorry, our third point. Generosity is a doctrinal issue. Here's why Paul talking about this to the church at Corinth, here's why it actually matters. If you don't pull anything out of my sermon this morning other than this line I'm about to share with you, please remember this. God is generous. The creator of the universe is generous. I mean, just pause and think about it for a second. He created us. He made a planet suited to sustain us and often provides for our needs and our pleasures. And that he ultimately demonstrated his generosity toward us and that he offered Jesus to atone for our sin and rebellion. God calls his church to reflect generosity because it is his character of generosity that we're called to reflect. Right, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right, Paul is, is uh, excuse me, chapter 9, Paul is following up to this letter in 1 Corinthians. And he's following up to even this call to be generous in the collection for the church in Jerusalem. And, and look at what he says, starting in verse 6, chapter 9. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, that is not Paul saying that if you, give a, if you sow a lot, God's going to give you a bunch in return. Right? Whatever you sow, however it's paid back to you, it may be paid back to you in losing things that you felt like you needed that you didn't need. Look at what he says next. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 
I see what he's saying there. He's saying your generosity says something to the world about the generosity of your God. And that your generosity doesn't just supply for needs, but produces thanksgiving to God. And that thanksgiving to God leads to a greater worship of Jesus. And church, that's why we exist. is to see a greater worship of our Savior and our King. And then lastly, the fourth point on giving and generosity in the church. The church is to be involved in managing the collection well. And here's what I mean by that. If you are giving to your local church, you should be interested in how they are budgeting and using those finances. Doesn't mean you need to care as much as Jackie does where she'd like to check the checkbook and, and see the ins and outs and manage all that stuff. My wife cares deeply about that stuff. Some of you guys are accountants. So you care about that as well. But you should care on some level, right? That the money your local church body is using is being saved and used properly. And let me just speak for the elders of Aletheia Church. We will happily show you the books anytime you want. Because we believe God has been beyond faithful to this church. And we believe that God is using your giving and your generosity to make much of him and to serve and love others here in Gainesville and beyond. And so Paul reminds us that we have a responsibility of generosity. Guys, this is not a suggestion. This is not some like, hey, if you get around to it. No, he's saying you have a responsibility of generosity to care for the needs of others, especially the poor and the orphans and the widows. And our church does this collectively. We, we are doing this. And if you're not giving here consistently, you're missing out on being a part of that aspect of this church's ministry. We have ministry partnerships in Columbia. We have ministry partnerships here locally through a personal benevolence fund that our church actually pays for utilities for people. Or if one of our members loses a job, that we're there to help them get back on their feet. We support the Sierra Pregnancy Center and created... And we're always looking for more opportunities. And we want to continue to be generous as a church because we're called to do so because it is a great responsibility our God has given us. So if you're not giving, the question you need to ask yourself is why? And if, you, and if your answer is, because I can't afford to keep the lights on in my house, come ask for help. Other people in this church have been giving so that we might set it aside to help you in this season. But that we are a generous church because our God is a generous God. So he moves from talking about this responsibility that we have of generosity to this next point, that there is a responsibility we have for encouragement. And guys, I think this is really timely because our culture seems to not think that we have this responsibility right now. I see a lot of cynicism. I see a lot of tearing down. I don't see a whole lot of encouragement and building up. 
And I think if the church cornered the market on this, you would see some radical transformations in communities. It's like, yeah, I don't know about all those things those Christians believe, but man, are they encouraging. How great would it be to be known for that? Right, look at all the different ways throughout chapter 16 that Paul reiterates to them that there is a responsibility to encouragement in the church. Right? In verses 5 through 8, Paul expresses his own hope to come and visit them. Right? He says, hey, I'll come when I can. There's been a wide door of ministry that has been open for me in Ephesus, so I have to stay right now in verse 9. And basically, he's saying to them, hey, I want to come and encourage you, but I'm super encouraged about what God's doing here in Ephesus. You should be encouraged by that as well. And the reason why I've delayed in coming to you is because God's doing some cool stuff here in Ephesus. Right? Then, he, then he encourages them to encourage Timothy once he comes. Timothy was a younger pastor. This church in particular struggled with uh, cults of personality and celebrity. And so he knew that there might be a tendency for them to be overly critical and judgmental of Timothy when he showed up there. And his point to them is, hey, Timothy's going to come and he's going to teach you and he's going to love on you and he's going to encourage you. I expect you to do the same when he shows up. I expect you to love on him and encourage him and encourage him in the ministry that he's doing. He then reminds them because these guys loved Apollos. Hey, Apollos will eventually come to encourage you as well. I've talked to him. It's verse 12. He's coming. I promise you. He's going to come and encourage you. And then he encourages them in verses 15 through 18 to recognize the household of Stephanus and to encourage them when they see him. Right? Now, these guys were the first converts in Achaia, and they served the saints well, and Paul's giving recognition to them. And he's basically teaching us and he's teaching the Corinthians, hey, when people love you well, you should in return thank them. Guys, some of you guys are younger in this room, so I want to I just kind of speak to you for a second. There are a lot of people that have invested a lot of time, money, and talent in you. A lot. Right? If you're here and a student at the University of Florida and you're on Bright Futures, your own government is making an investment in you. I pause and think about that for a minute. I know this is not an opportunity to debate whether the government should be doing that or not. Let me just say this. There have been a lot of people who have invested in you. Parents, grandparents, friends, family, teachers, People in the community, some of you guys played sports, coaches, right? No one just comes out and is born and is ready to take on the world. That people have invested on you. And Paul's word to us is when people love you well, when people serve you well, when people teach you and build you up and help you grow into the man or woman that you've become and are becoming, show some appreciation. Encourage them. Thank them. Because guess what? It's not always easy. I've seen some of you guys. I would imagine you were like me in high school. Not a ton of fun to deal with. People put up with you because they loved you and had a calling for you. Encourage them in what they're doing so they might continue in that calling. 
Right? Then he shares in verses 19 through 24 that there were other churches in the Mediterranean world that were praying and excited for them in Corinth and excited for their ministry. Right? He says, Aquila and Prisca say hello and their churches greet you. And then Paul says this in verse 24, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Alethea Church, do you know this, that there are churches around the U.S. and here in Florida and even around the world that pray for you specifically and are blessed by you and your faithfulness to Jesus. Right? Just like pause and think about that for a minute. There are churches around the world that exist and are encouraged because of your faithfulness here at Aletheia Church in Gainesville, Florida. This is the beauty of the body of Christ. That as God is faithful to you and you are faithful to him, your faithfulness is an encouragement to others that you may not ever even meet. And this is why Paul calls us to not grow weary in encouraging one another and building one another up, even those not directly involved in our ministry. And church, this is an encouragement to us to take a different approach to how we engage our community and the world around us because this is not something that's being done well in the world right now. But how beautiful would it be if we started doing this? And not just us, but I mean the church. Wouldn't it be great if the church was known? Man, those are people that love people and encourage people and build people up. I don't know about the dogma. I don't know about the doctrine. But man, I love that. Let's commit to that and live that out. And then lastly, right, we've seen a responsibility to generosity, a responsibility of encouragement. And then we see the third kind of theme that Paul pulls out in this text. And that's a responsibility to faithfulness. Verses 13 and 14, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now remember, Paul started this church. Right, This church would not exist without him being there to start it. And, he's, and even though he's left, he still has a great love for it. And he wants this church and this ministry to continue to remain faithful to God and love the city of Corinth well because that was the reason he had gone there in the first place to plant this church. So he cares deeply about this church community. And he's going to give them a number of ways to remain faithful as a church body. Right? He gives five of them. He says, be watchful. He basically says, hey, pay attention to your own life and what is going on inside the church. Like, make sure you're paying attention. Don't just go through the motions, but actually care. Actually care about your own life matching up with what you say you believe. And care about that for your brothers and sisters around you. He says, stand firm in the faith. Right? His reminder to them is, hey, church, guys, remember what made us gather in the first place? 
It was the good news of Jesus the Messiah dying in our place and offering us life over death. Forgiveness of sin, mercy, love, adoption as sons. That's, that was what brought us together. Stand firm in that. Don't get bogged down by all these other things that are going on around you. You can have an opinion on them, but stand firm in the faith. Because that is why we exist. Then he says this line, act like men. All right, here we go. This is a, this is a super, super interesting term in the Greek. So ladies, you are not off the hook here. Okay? This word is the Greek word andritzomai. And it was used frequently to encourage people to remain steadfast in what they were doing. But it was most frequently used in the Greek for soldiers who were in battle and were struggling. Okay? So it gets translated regularly, act like men, but that's not really a great translation for it. Right? The, the actual translation should more so be along the lines of, hey, life gets hard. Be courageous and stand up in the midst of it. Right, basically what Paul is saying to this church, both to the men and the women in this church, hey, as a follower of Jesus, sometimes you're going to face persecution. In life, you're going to face suffering. You're going to face difficulty. You're going to face loss. Stand firm. Be courageous. Right? It's like I try to teach my youngest son, Josiah, who's who's really, really nervous. Some of you guys have seen him when he's around groups of people. He's doing this number. And I'll walk up to him. And if you've ever seen it, you'll know what I'm doing. I'll walk up and I'll grab him by his shoulder and I'll pull his shoulders back and I'll put my hand right here in the small of his back. Right? And then, and then he'll start talking to somebody and he'll do this thing again. And I'll do this number again. I'm like, dude, shoulders up. Confidence. Right? Right? I'm teaching him. Right? Then in a world that he's scared of and, and there's difficulty around him, that the way you approach that is not in fear and trepidation, but with courage. And God has that same charge to us as a church. That even though things may get difficult, we may receive backlash or persecution, to not cease to proclaim the good news and serve others. He says, be strong. Right? That word in the Greek has this idea of when acting with courage, like he's just called us to, to do so with persistence and perseverance. Right? Anyone who's ever lifted weights knows that you gain strength with persistence and perseverance. You do it over and over and over again. And as you do that and, and, and continue to stand firm with the stress to your body, your body adapts. And Paul's encouragement to this church is as you face persecution and you stand up courageously, continue to do so and be strong by persisting in the faith. And then his last charge, show love. Right? Do all of this in love. Right? Not in argumentation, not in debate, not in being overly critical, but with the very thing Pastor Daniel taught us on a couple weeks ago, love, kindness, patience, peace, 
long-suffering, service. And as we do these things, right, we'll see God use his church to be a beacon of hope to the world around us. You know, Paul has a lot of final lessons and applications here, and, and they're tied throughout this entire letter, right? I mean, remember some of the things we saw as we studied this book together. Right, this church was fighting amongst themselves over who was the best preacher and pastor and teacher in the church and who they were aligning with. This church was fighting over trivial matters inside the church. They were refusing to serve and love one another. They were actively tearing one another down instead of building one another up. They were refusing to show honor to one another and encourage one another, even as husband and wife inside of the church. They were placing their own rights and preferences above their neighbor and the glory of God. And Paul writes this letter that has now been turned into 16 chapters to this church. And he sees all of these issues inside this church in Corinth. And look at how he ends this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Is he without hope? No, he's filled with hope. Guys, this church was a hot mess. Right? This was the church that hasn't had a stable pastor for years and, and they bring in a pastor who's trying to, to enter the pastorate and he's there for five minutes and is like, I would rather not work than take this job. That's how messed up this church was. And here Paul's writing them. He knows how messed up they are. He's planted this church. He knows most of them personally. And he has great hope for this church. And, he, and I think if we look closely, we can see why. He has great hope for them and for us. Not because of them, but because he has a great Savior and that is who theirs is as well. We can have great hope for the church because we have a great Savior. I mean, think about it. Let's just even look at it in light of the three things he pointed out to us this morning. Jesus is generous. Right? Look at Philippians chapter 2 with me. Verses 5 through 11. Right? I love this passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, that is generosity. Leaving the throne room of heaven and giving his very life for your sake. That is generosity. Right, when God asks us to be generous, it's not some command of a king who wants to reap what you've sown, but because he wants you to reflect who your God and king is. And Jesus is generous, right? Jesus is also an encourager. Turn over to John chapter 21 with me. This is honestly, as a follower of Jesus, one of my two or three favorite stories in the entirety of Scripture. Because if you remember, at, at, the, at the Last Supper, Peter's talking about basically how awesome he is. He does that regularly, but he's doing it again. And he's like, Jesus, I love you so much, and I am so wise, and I know who you are as the Messiah, that I, I will follow you to the point of death. And I know that you're telling all these people here tonight that we're not going to keep with you, but I'm telling you, you're wrong. I will stand firm to the final breath. And not even a few hours later, what happens? He denies him three times, right? And at the end of those three times, Peter has this opportunity to do exactly what he said he would do. And what does he do? He goes home weeping, right? So Peter, guys, by the time we get to John chapter 21, is a broken man. He's failed his king, He's failed his Savior. And look at how Jesus encourages him. Starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, this is the resurrected Jesus, by the way. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, if you don't understand what's happening at this point in the story, here's what Jesus is doing. He's reminding Peter of his betrayal. It's like, I asked, I'm asking you this three times, Peter, because you denied me how many times? Three. Now, look what happens. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Look at the encouragement that he gives him. He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord. He says, feed my sheep. And then this is what he says. You will die for the sake of the gospel, the very thing you had promised me you would do. Follow me. Right? Not I cast you out. Not I've given up on you. Not I'm done with you. Not you failed me. Not I'm going to find someone else who has a thicker skin than you or a bigger backbone than me. No. Feed my sheep and follow me. Why? Because Jesus is a great encourager in church. He's the same for you. Right? His mercies are new every day. Follow him. Encourage like him. And lastly, Jesus is faithful. First John 1 John 1.9 is going to be our final point. If we confess our sins... Here's the promise. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I do know this. If Jesus is your God and King, He is far more faithful than you are. And he will forgive you. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because that is who our king is. Church, this is our high calling. We titled this series months ago, 1 Corinthians, A Transformed Church. Because what... Paul wanted these people to understand more than anything else is that they were called to live transformed lives that displayed to the world who their Savior was.